Well, good morning. I'm Pastor Evan. Glad to be with you all. Hope you're happy to be here this morning. Uh, the sermon today, thank you for Evan for reading kind of the longer portion of our text this morning. We're going to be in Acts chapter 10, starting at verse 1. I invite you to find that. Title of the sermon is Rooftop Convictions. And as you read scripture, you can recognize that sometimes real good things are produced from rooftop moments and sometimes real bad things. Uh, this morning, it's a good thing that comes from a rooftop moment with Peter and Cornelius. Um, as we're looking at, um, this is the last uh, sermon in this short little series we've been doing on Warmly Welcomed, uh, creating a better belonging among God's people. I'm really thankful for Nina's testimony this morning of how we've been warmly welcoming, right? But it's always good to continue to think about how was I welcomed and how can I welcome others and how uh, did they struggle with this in the, in the book of Acts in the early church? We've always got to struggle with and get better at being warmly welcoming as God's people. And as we've looked through this series, we've looked at some barriers that were there between Jew and Gentile as they became church, united in Jesus Christ. Um, and we'll talk about a couple of those momentarily. But one of the points we started with that I want to end with is simply this. Disciples of Jesus look for those who are far from God and point them to Jesus. Specifically, though, this isn't a passive pointing at all times. This is an active invitational posture that we take. Um, that we are not just saying, oh, Jesus is interesting, you should check him out. We're inviting people in because we've been invited in by our Savior, Jesus Christ. And I hope everybody that follows Jesus is thankful for that this morning. Jesus invited me in to new life with him. It's the life that's truly life. That's the thing we're supposed to do to others is invite them to that very same thing. The barriers that we ran into and talked about, we kind of worked our way from Acts 15, came back to the beginning of, of Acts and worked through a couple of barriers that were encountered. And some of them were, were internal, actually, that would prevent them not even from welcoming Gentiles that were already there, but, but would prevent them from welcoming anybody from the outside when we get down to it. There was the issue of language in Acts chapter 2. We looked last week at issues of culture, uh, Jew to Jew culture, essentially, uh, together in the early church and systems that weren't working, and that caused inconsistency in care, a misuse of gifts, those sorts of things, and those things had to be wrestled with and worked through. There was, when we started in Acts 15, you can see that there was unclarity on what life in Christ really looked like as his church, as this sort of emerging movement, uh, living life under the Messiah, Jesus. But this week in Acts 10, and, and really Acts 11, continues the same story, and I commend you to read it later, when Paul has to, or Peter has to explain to the church, and get them on, the rest of the church on board too. Um, this week, it's narrow mission focus, is really what it is. Their focus as God's people was just a little too narrow. And God speaks to Peter and says, hey, I'm already broadening it. Are you on board? That's what happens here. And so I want, we need to look at Cornelius first, the Gentile that we run into here. So let's go to Acts 10, 1 through 3, and we run into a man of good character. It says, at Caesarea, there was a man named Cornelius, a centurion in what was known as the Italian Regiment. He and all his family were devout and God-fearing. He gave generously to those in need and prayed to God regularly. One day at about three in the afternoon, he had a vision. He distinctly saw an angel of God who came to him and said, Cornelius. This man, it, it describes as devout and God-fearing. And a number of things that that means but in that description, it tells us that he's turned his attention to God, 
to Yahweh. And, and by doing so, I think we can start out by saying that means he's rejected largely the worldview of other gods in his time and place. He's a soldier. Soldiers in the Roman army had a set of you know, religious practices that kind of were pretty enticing to them. You could find a god pretty much anywhere you wanted to go that was Roman, Greek, or otherwise in your local community. You maybe had a community god in these different places, which was quite common. He was rejecting all of that by being a God-fearing and devout man who was aimed at the one true God. In Yahweh, he saw goodness and truth versus the Roman gods and the others where he didn't see that. So he's obviously making a choice. But the problem of being God-fearing but not yet being fully in is that he's not willing to be circumcised, apparently, as a male, but then his whole family would need to be ritually washed and then make some commitments to come in and be fully Jewish, and they haven't chosen to do that. So they're God-fearers, people who sat, Gentiles who sat around the edge and didn't quite fully come in. But what does that mean practically? It means that they can't participate in the life of stuff at the temple, the feasts, the three annual feasts that happen, and they can't go and give a sacrifice of atonement. So essentially, and I think Warren Rearsby puts this really well, he said Cornelius had piety and morality, but he did not have salvation, is a simple way to put it. There's no way he could be made right with God through the sacrificial system that God gave, because he didn't fully come in, and so he couldn't go to the temple and do that. He's a centurion, that means he's a, a commander of a hundred others, the Romans were very practical like that, century, centurion. And that was a position of responsibility, of discipline, of merit. I mean, you had, this guy has something, some character naturally there to him. And he can look the part, but he isn't fully there. And I think this is really an important thing. We've already talked about this a few weeks ago, and I think it's important to revisit it just one more time and to say this. It's easy enough to say that I can look like a Christian but not be one if we're not careful. We can look the part, and so it's important for us, whether we're in church or not, to ask the question, have I actually said yes to Jesus Christ, or do I just look the part and have been doing this for a long time? I think as a pastor, it'd be malpractice if I didn't ask that question every so often to make sure that we check ourselves and make sure that we've made the commitment to Christ as disciples and don't just look the part. He's devout and God-fearing. He's just, just on the edge, but he looks, looks good. And he's doing good stuff. He's also generous, it describes. And I think this is one of the most astounding, there's a lot of astounding things, but I think this is one of the most astounding things for us to consider the impact on us today. God used the gifts of someone unsaved to affect you and me today. Because we've talked about this before, but my assumption is that 98.6% of us are probably Gentiles. That is, we don't come from ethnically or religious Jewish homes. And God used the gifts of this man to bring the Gentiles in. We wouldn't be here today if that hadn't happened. Isn't that a remarkable thing to think about? About how God can use all kinds of different ways to bring us in. And ultimately, it affects the kingdom of God in some remarkable ways. And I want to point out then that even from his sort of unsaved position but open position, a life of generosity opens us up to hearing from God in a way that 
being ungenerous never would. If we look at Acts 10, 30, and 31, when Peter is talking with Paul, Cornelius, or Peter is talking to Cornelius, too many P names there in the New Testament. Cornelius responds to Peter. He says, three days ago, I was in my house praying at this hour at three in the afternoon. Suddenly a man in shining clothes stood before me and said, Cornelius, God has heard your prayer and remembered your gifts to the poor. His generosity, and it's an attitude, right? Generosity is something we actually choose. His generosity is actually what made him open to hearing it all from God. And this is a speculative question that I think it's worth just thinking about. How much more generous do you think he was after he came to know Jesus than before, if he was already this generous? Do you think it expanded or went back? And we should be thankful when we know Jesus Christ and our generosity should increase at that point. But here's the thing that I thought was interesting as a question for us. Do you ever consider how your giving and your generosity might affect future generations? His generosity, even in an unsaved state, affected you and me. Do you ever consider how your giving and your generosity affects the eternal status of others and especially future generations? It's a powerful thought. Now we can turn to Peter. If we go to Acts 10, 9 through 16, we can read about what Peter's experiencing. Here it says about noon the following day as they were on their journey and approaching the city, Peter went up on the roof to pray. He became hungry and wanted something to eat, and while the meal was being prepared, he fell into a trance. He saw heaven open and something like a large sheet being let down to earth by its four corners. It contained all kinds of four-footed animals, as well as reptiles and birds. Then a voice said to him, get up, Peter, kill and eat. Surely not, Lord, Peter replied. I've never eaten anything impure or unclean. The voice spoke to him a second time, do not call anything impure that God has made clean. This happened three times, and immediately the sheet was taken back to heaven. At noon the following day basically means 24 hours later, and the meaning of that at this point, because it tells you they were already on their way, the people from Cornelius' house were already on the way, the meaning of this is God is already up to something Peter is simply receiving an invitation to a work God has already started. God didn't start the work when he invited Peter. God started the work and then invited Peter. And that's an important point to remember. Also, it's important to recognize this, and we can return to this in a little bit. Peter was simply waiting for lunch when God spoke. I mean, I, I think there's an important detail there. Peter had been praying... And then lunch was being prepared. Peter wasn't praying and then God spoke. Peter was waiting for lunch and God spoke. And we can easily be distracted by the mundane things in life and miss God speaking. I was thinking about, and this isn't a grand uh, thought, but I was thinking about in, in my own college days, there was a college, an orientation for freshmen and uh, transfer students. I had gone through it and then I had been a volunteer. This was in Chicago at North Park University and um, the final sort of semester I was there, they were doing this orientation, and uh, I didn't want to volunteer. I was too busy with other things, and somebody said, well, they really need volunteers, and you still get to go downtown and eat at Harry Carey's, which is a very fine restaurant downtown, and I said, okay, 
I'll go just for that reason. So that, they had a little application with lots of room to write why you want to do this and all that. I simply wrote my name and wrote free food on it as to why you wanted to do this. And they were hard up for volunteers. And so they, they took me anyways. And I, I got roast beef was incredible. But what was unexpected is I met a good friend out of that. I didn't expect that. Now, that's not a way that God really moved in some monumental way, but God can take those mundane things where we're not expecting something to happen and do something remarkable with them. As we look at Peter's reaction, though, and then I said I commend you reading Acts chapter 11 later because what you can see is Peter was resistant to God's call and invitation. And as, if you read Acts 11, you see the church was resistant to what God was doing in that moment. But they ultimately recognized that the mission trumps whatever was going on. The mission overtakes whatever was going on. And so as we look at sort of Peter's rooftop convictions here and the posture that he took, I just want to make kind of two simple points about it. The first is that, and we heard this with the children's message this morning, is that obedience to God's mission shows trust. It shows that we trust God when we obey. Peter needed to hear from the Lord three times. Did you notice that in the text? Three times the sheep came down in that trance. And he resisted two of those times. And it's easy to rag on Peter and say, Peter, why couldn't you have just gotten it the first time? I was thinking of times when I've missed the mark too, just this week. And uh, as I reflected on this, um, you know, it was three and a half years ago, I had a dream that I don't ever remember my dreams. Woke up and I was like, that one seemed like it was from God. Told Stephanie it was put on the full armor of God. And Stephanie said, oh, what do you think it means? I said, I don't know. A couple weeks later, things were going off the rails in, in a number of places. And Stephanie said, do you remember your dream? And I said, what dream? The one you said was from God? <laughs> that has happened twice, actually, over the last three years. That same exact dream and the same reminder from my wife. Do you remember your dream? What dream? The one you said came from God. Oh, right, that one. Three times the sheep came down. Three times. Peter did two things wrong, but then he eventually righted them. The first is he didn't trust God. The sheep comes down, he doesn't trust God. And I want to point out something about obedience. If we're saying obedience to the mission shows trust in God, obedience can be self-serving, but then it's not actually obedience. It just looks like obedience. It's a parody of obedience. Right? And, and so the great examples, obvious examples from the New Testament are like the Pharisees where they follow the law slavishly, but they're not actually being obedient in heart and the spirit of the law. They're just doing it and they look right. Uh, classic Old Testament example that people use a lot right now, especially is Isaiah 58, where the people are giving their offerings and going to the temple and doing the sacrifices and everything like that, but they're, they're really mean to each other when they do it. And God says, your sacrifices mean nothing to me because you guys are beating each other up at the altar. What good is that? So they look obedient, but it's not actually obedience in that case. Actual obedience shows trust, and actual obedience shows a concern in something bigger than me, a greater purpose, a greater mission than just my needs. And so an interesting thing we can consider is when, for instance, we come together in worship— do you believe that your participation only affects you or is it part of a greater work of God? 
When we're singing together, when we're hearing scripture, when we're hearing testimony, it, does that just affect me? Does that just affect this relationship or does that have some impact? And could it have some greater impact? Am I here not just for me and God, but for us and the kingdom? Do I trust God? Do I show obedience to the mission in my trust? The second thing that Peter, uh, that was wrong on Peter's part, he didn't trust God. But the second thing is he misunderstood God's work in Jesus in all of this lack of trust. Maybe that's the, the, the actual cause, not the symptom. But God's covenant that he made with Israel, which is what's in, in view here of how to maintain that with the dietary restrictions and laws, God's covenant with Israel was always intended to lead others, Gentiles included, into that relationship with God. There was supposed to be a nation of priests set apart with that system, the sacrificial system, certainly, and also the dietary laws, so that they would be a different people demonstrating the holiness of God to everyone else. Then people could come in. And they would essentially, as priests, go on behalf of the people to God. But it was a temporary system. You can read the book of Hebrews and get that all in, in all kinds of great detail. Jesus was the true sacrifice, and Paul tells us this in Romans 11, and we'll see it in just a moment in Mark 7 from the words of Jesus, but Jesus was the true sacrifice, and so when he comes and fulfills the law, everybody now, Jew and Gentile, is unclean before coming to Jesus. That's the issue. So it's not unclean to go hang out with the Gentiles, because they're unclean too. Jesus is the one that's going to clean us both up. That's what's happening at this point. It's not what you eat at that point that does it. Jesus fulfilled that. You can see Jesus was getting to this in Mark 7, and the disciples didn't get it. Mark 7, 14 through 23, it'll be on the screen. Again, Jesus called the crowd to him and said, listen to me, everyone, and understand this. Nothing outside a person can defile them by going into them. Rather, it is what comes out of a person that defiles them. After he had left the crowd and entered the house, his disciples asked him about this parable. Are you so dull? He asked. Don't you see that nothing that enters a person from the outside can defile them? For it doesn't go into the heart, but into their stomach and then out of the body. And saying this, Jesus declared all foods clean. He went on, what comes out of a person is what defiles them. For it is from within, out of a person's heart, that evil thoughts come, sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery, greed, malice, deceit, lewdness, envy, slander, arrogance, and folly. All these evils come from the inside and defile a person. What would be going through Peter's mind in Acts 10 is uh, what was stated in places like Leviticus 18 and 19 about the dietary restrictions. And what you can see, and sometimes we get lost in the details on this, is that those things that were immoral were not now clean. Jesus is obviously saying that. But the stuff that marked them out doesn't need to be done in the same way anymore because Jesus marks them out as a new people. And sometimes we're slow to learn the reality of what God is doing, just like Peter. But when we're called to obey the mission, that shows trust, even when we don't fully understand what God is up to. The second conviction that Peter has is really more of a challenge to us as well. That is that we should be apostolic because God is already working. Peter is invited to actually do something that God has already started. And that's important for us to remember. Now, when I say apostolic or to be an apostle, it's to be sent 
is really all that word means um, in its basic root to share and invite others, to be sent to do that, to invite them to the gospel. And we've got to practice it in-house if we're going to get it right out of house. So that's why we've been talking about being warmly welcoming. We need to be warmly welcoming to each other, talk to each other, enjoy one another, enjoy the fellowship of one another, practice being warmly welcomed, ask a question you wouldn't ask today normally about how somebody else is doing, that kind of thing. Be apostolic in-house. But recognize that if we're apostolic in our, uh, in our disposition when we walk out of this place, then we are actually acknowledging that God is already working around us. And we're simply looking for the invitation of where God is already at work, right? Do you actually believe, consider this, do you believe that God is working right now and might invite you into that work? That's to have an apostolic heart. Cornelius, as we said at the beginning, is like being a righteous and pious man or as much as he can be on the outside. He's rejecting a religious worldview that says, I can dictate the terms of my relationship with whatever God I choose. I can sacrifice when I want without commitment because in the ancient world you could give a pinch of salt or sacrifice to one of the gods or something like that. And there was no moral commitment. There's no really commitment at all other than just to get the God off your back so they wouldn't do anything bad to you and maybe rest a blessing out of them. It's completely different with the one true God. And he's rejecting that. He's saying, no, I want the one true God. That's who I serve. And what's really interesting to consider when we think about being apostolic and having an apostolic disposition and an apostolic heart, somebody who's sent to share and invite. And, and I'm, I'm going to credit Warren Rearsby for pointing this out in his commentary on this. I had not noticed this. I didn't notice any other commentator who had noticed this. Peter, when he's called, is 30 miles away in Joppa. Cornelius is in Caesarea. If you read Acts 8, you realize that the apostle Philip has gone from Jerusalem with the Ethiopian eunuch and then gone up to Caesarea, and he's currently in Caesarea when God calls Cornelius and sends his people 30 miles to Joppa. Does that strike you as curious that there's already an apostle in Caesarea and God calls Peter instead to Caesarea? We can't make all the heads or tails out of that. We can say, obviously, Peter was a leader within the church, and so there might be something to that. But can we at least just say that uh, it's entirely possible that God, just like with Peter, had somebody special to bring the message with Cornelius, that God may have some, somebody that only you can speak to. They're only going to receive your words as an apostle. They might have other people speaking into their lives, but God's got someone he's inviting you to. Probably multiple people he's inviting you to share the good news with. Whose heart is God preparing around you? And just as importantly, how is your heart being prepared to receive that invitation this morning? One way that uh, we've tried to, as much as we can practically here, uh, set ourselves up to be intentionally looking for these opportunities, and you can do this on an individual level, is something that we've called two-degree vectoring. I, I didn't come up with it. It's from a, another book on evangelism and reaching out. But it's a really important principle to consider to have a heart like this when we're doing things together and when we're doing things individually. So the idea is that anything that you're normally doing in your day-to-day -day life or that we would normally be doing within ministry life, 
uh, as a church, that if you just take the needle and just vector it out two degrees, how could you potentially take the thing you're doing and reach a new population of people with it, or even one or two new people with it? Always thinking about how to just move the needle out, not changing all your plans. So a simple way that, for instance, a middle school youth group kind of unintentionally did it uh, last week on Sunday night is, um, it's really because I was hungry. And uh, Mark Schwarting and I have been leading the middle school youth group right now. We knew we had small numbers last week. Mark's been teaching. I've been doing the games. And uh, it was National Frozen Yogurt Day last Sunday. I don't know if you realize this. And so I got the little text that says 50% off at one of the places in town. I said, hey, we should meet on location, Mark. That'd be really fun. Because we've done it before. It's a really great way to get to know the kids in a different way, in a different environment. So that's actually two-degree vectoring when you get down to it. The thing we were going to do that we planned on doing, we just inched it, went somewhere else. It certainly changed the dynamics of the group in a positive way, I think, uh, to get to know each other in a different way, but it could also open up to new possibilities when we do that. You know, if your small group decided to meet somewhere else or something like that. It doesn't have to be big. It can be small. But that, that way we kind of change our minds and intentionally are looking for these opportunities. That's just one example. I want to say, though, as the result of all of this, if we look at Acts 10, 44 through 46, and we heard this already this morning, um, God surprised Peter and he surprised the church, ultimately. Acts 10, 44 through 47, we'll read. It says, while Peter was still speaking, so now he's at Cornelius' house talking about what it means to come to Christ, the Holy Spirit came on all who heard the message. The circumcised believers who had come with Peter were astonished that the gift of the Holy Spirit had been poured out even on Gentiles, for they heard them speaking in tongues and praising God. Then Peter said, surely no one can stand in the way of their being baptized with water. They have received the Holy Spirit just as we have. Peter reconfigured his plans accordingly. God was already working. He was just accepting the invitation. When you come to worship God, as God's people here together, do you have the belief that your invitation to another person may have such surprising kingdom effects? When you're out and about in the world, do you pray that you would be invited into what God is already doing and believe your daily interaction with someone may affect their eternal relationship with Jesus Christ? Those kind of sound like lofty kind of things to think about. But is it that lofty? Peter was laying on the roof waiting for lunch. And you're here today. I mean, when you get down to it, that's the long and short of it, right? Peter was lying on the roof, waiting for lunch. God spoke. How might God be inviting you to invite others into his mission? Let's be warmly welcoming to God's invitation. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for welcoming us. May your kingdom be expanded because we came today and worshiped and because your Holy Spirit is working and because we said yes to you and to your invitation to be apostles in this world. We don't have to get up business cards that are printed up and say I'm an apostle and evangelist in order to do that. God, we just need to have our eyes open, have a generous spirit and be ready to, to accept the invitation that you've already put out there to others around us. We have neighbors, we have friends, we have coworkers, we have family members all around us who are lost, who are hurting, who don't yet know you, and you haven't invited somebody else to share the good news with them. You invited us to share the good news with them. 
And you didn't start the invitation to them when you started with us. You've already invited them, God. We know your Holy Spirit is at work. Help us have such generous hearts that we can see where you're working and accept your invitation. Even if it takes three times, like Peter. Even if it takes two times, like me forgetting. God, may we say yes ultimately so that your kingdom grows, so that others have an eternal relationship with your son, Jesus Christ, and experience the life that is truly life. May we be challenged in that way this morning, Lord. Amen.